Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again. Today we are concluding our series in Jonah, The Offensive Compassion of God, and we're at chapter four. But by way of catching you up and getting up to speed, let me just give you a bit of background as to what's happened so far. Jonah is a Hebrew prophet called by God to deliver a message of judgment to the pagan city of Nineveh, which is one of the most evil and violent cities of the ancient world. Jonah doesn't go. He runs the other way, boarding a ship to Tarshish, but God sends a violent storm, which causes the sailors to turn to God for help. Reluctantly, at Jonah's request, the sailors throw him overboard and they are saved. In the sea, Jonah expects to drown, but God sends a big fish, which swallows him up. After three days and nights in the fish's belly, close to death and in his despair, Jonah cries out to God for help. God hears his prayer and saves him, instructing the fish to vomit him up onto the shore where God again sends him to Nineveh. This time around, Jonah delivers the message, just five words, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. The people of Nineveh repent immediately. They put on sackcloth, they go into mourning. They completely change their ways and cry out to God in the hope of mercy. As a result of their actions, God relents and he doesn't destroy them as he was originally planning to do. And last week, when we were talking about this part of the story, we reminded ourselves about how God's mercy and compassion is available to everyone who turns to him, including us, the people of the second chance. Now, we were talking about this in our life group a week or so ago, and Dave told us about an event in his own life, which really helps him to relate to the story of Jonah. It's really powerful, and I wanted him to share it. So here's Dave just telling you about something that happened a few years ago. Uh, December of 2015. Uh, as a family, we took a vacation to Morocco. Um, I absolutely love surfing. Looked out the hotel room just after 6 a.m. in the morning, and there were just these, you know, what we call in surfing, freight trains coming <laughs> through. Uh, this really, really big swell coming through. Um, there was no one in the water yet, um, which is, and the surf's really good, a, a real treat. So I got my wetsuit on really quickly, grabbed my board. Sue was still asleep. Uh, the girls were still asleep and um, ran down to the beach and, and, and paddled out. And um, I managed to get to the back line where the waves were really, really easy. And um, getting to the back line, I realized that the, the waves are probably bigger than I'd ever surfed by quite some margin before, like a, a lot bigger. And um, I paddled into the, the wave and, and they were so big and so fast, the, the waves just went straight underneath me and I couldn't get onto it. And uh, when I turned around to paddle back out, uh, a very big wave, the second wave in the, the set came through. And uh, I tried to get through it, but I couldn't. And I, um, I duck dived my board down to, to get below the wave. And um, the wave just hammered me and instantly snapped the leash on my surfboard, which left me um, out in the ocean with uh, no buoyancy really at all. And uh, that, that first wave held me down for um, probably a minute and a half, wow. um, which was very scary. Uh, I realized straight away that I was in trouble. I got to the surface, managed to take a very quick breath of air, and at that point, the second wave hit me. And again, um, I had a hold down for probably just over a minute. And uh, now I'm really in trouble, really starting to panic. And uh, I had a third hold down. When I got up, I had a third hold down again in real trouble. And during the third hold down, I started aspirating water into my lungs, um, which very quickly results into you um, 
going into various physiological problems, which I recognize from, from years of scuba diving and, and reading about near drowning incidents. And um, I realized that I was drowning. Anyway, this, this struggle in the surf carried on for, for certainly, you know, probably, you know, nine or 10 minutes. And um, at a point I realized that I was going to drown. And um, the fighting was just not going to help me. And I began to pray. Mm. But, but pray in a different way, perhaps, to what I'd ever prayed before, because there was this absolute recognition that this was the end. And um, I just simply said to God, you know, forgive me for my sins. And Lord, please may your blessing in your hand be on my family. And I relaxed. And um, actually, just by the grace of God, um, a peace came about me. And I began to float. And um, yeah, the, the, the waves literally pushed me to shore where a young Moroccan boy, uh, he must have been, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 years old, pulled me out the water and, and dragged me onto the beach. You know, when, when, when reflection came, you know, and, and I started reading the story of Jonah, there was this absolute recognition of the emotion perhaps that, that Jonah experienced. Um, once he was thrown overboard and perhaps once he was in um, the fish, you know, it was this recognition that God's hand was still on him, the idea that he was still alive um, and that this grace of God, in spite of his sin, the, this grace of God was still on his life. Mm. And um, I kind of just envisaged that the emotion that I felt could be very similar to the emotion that he felt that in spite of everything, God's hand was on me and that he was rescuing me. And thanks to Dave. Um, brilliant story, mate. Really appreciate that. Um, we're going to hit on chapter four then, uh, which is where uh, the story picks up and it picks up straight from the previous chapter. So straight from that decision that God made to relent. And uh, I'm going to read it to you and the words are going to come up on the screen. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take me away, take away my life, for it's better for me to live than to die. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and it made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? 
It's an abrupt and unexpected ending. Um, but that's for a reason. We'll come to that in a bit. There's a lot going on here. And broadly, I want to talk about this chapter in three sections. We're going to talk about Jonah's anger. We're going to talk about the tale of two shelters. And we're going to talk about learning a lesson. So we'll start with talking about Jonah's anger. And boy, is Jonah angry. He's angry because God has chosen to give the people of Nineveh a second chance. And Jonah doesn't seem to think they deserve it. You know, we never found out back in chapter one what the reason was for Jonah running away from his task. But now we know. He says to God something like, I always knew you'd do something like this to me. Well, I'm done. You might as well kill me now. What's the point? Let's look at this passage in a bit more detail. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how many of the words and phrases in this story, as in the whole of the Bible, form hyperlinks with other sections of other stories which the original audience would have known and clearly identified and which we can dig up for ourselves in order to get a deeper sense of what the author's really saying. And so here are a couple of slides of verses one to four, but I've formatted them slightly differently to show the symmetrical structure and highlight the key links. So here's the first one. The section, this whole section is framed with references to Jonah's anger and I've shown them in red. It displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. That's at the start. And then at the end, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, both of these statements remind us of a story right back in Genesis, the story of Cain. Now, like Jonah, Cain was really angry with God because God had chosen his brother's offering over his own. Cain was really jealous. And it says in Genesis 4, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then also in the same chapter, it says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Both of Cain's statements are echoed in Jonah. The next set of statements on this next slide are shown in green, and it's Jonah's complaint and his request to die. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said would happen? Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And again, there are clear links here with Jonah to back in the Israelites, when the Israelites were complaining to Moses in the desert, it's from Exodus 14. You know, I don't know if you know the story, but I'll just remind you, they've been dramatically rescued from slavery in Egypt and they were facing the obstacle of the Red Sea. They've got Pharaoh and his army chasing them and they think they're going to get caught. They don't know how they're going to get over the sea. And so the Israelites turned to Moses and started to complain. And it's recorded that they used some very similar words. They said, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better us to serve better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So again, you've got the same phrases. Is this not? Let me die. Or it would have been better for us to do this. And those echoes of Israel com Israel's complaint are right here in Jonah's request to God. So there's Cain's anger and there's Israel's complaint. And then at the centerpiece of this symmetrical section, I've shown it in blue, is the focus and the most important part of this little section. And it's this incredible description of the character of God. Jonah says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And this just sounds just like Exodus 34, which is the sort of thing that God first spoke to Moses up on the mountain. He said, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, sin. These are beautiful words that actually echo right across the Old Testament. 
This describes the true heart of God, his mercy, his compassion, which has already been demonstrated to the sailors and to Jonah himself and now to the Ninevites. Jonah knows the text. He knows the words. He understands God's kindness. And yet he's still angry. And the classic irony here is that Jonah is a prophet of Israel. And Israel themselves have been the subject of that incredible mercy of God. I briefly mentioned this story last week, the story of Moses and the golden calf. You know, he was up the mountain. And while he was up there talking with God, the Jews were in the wilderness waiting. Okay, and, um, and they got a bit restless and they got a bit fed up and they got diverted and they defied, decided to build themselves an idol to worship. So they built this golden calf and God watched on and he got really mad and his anger burned against his people and he almost gave up on them. I and mean, don't forget, they've got this whole history of complaining and moaning. But Moses pleaded with God. And just like in this story, God relented then and he showed his compassion and he gave Israel another chance. So Jonah is okay with his own nation of Israel being subject to the mercy and the kindness of God, but apparently not to any other nation. Jonah seems to have no compassion for the evil foreigners, no second chances for those wicked Ninevites. And I just want to remind you of God's covenant blessing with Abraham when he first established the Jewish nation back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and curse you, curse those who curse you. And here's the key part, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, right from the start, it was always God's plan for his covenant people to reach out and bless the other nations. We don't get to keep God's love to ourselves and we never did. He chose the Jews to live in relationship with, but the blessing was always meant to go out beyond them to all the peoples on earth. But Jonah seems to have forgotten that. And even in his own personal story, Jonah seems very comfortable with being rescued by God from the fish's belly, given his own personal second chance, but apparently not interested in God showing that same mercy to his enemies. And I just wonder if there's something here for all of us to consider. I wonder if we've ever had an attitude like Jonah's. I wonder if we found ourselves resenting the grace and the compassion and the second chances that God gives to other people, especially to those who in our eyes don't deserve it. What happens next? It's an unusual section. I've called it a tale of two shelters because in his anger, Jonah goes out from the city and he builds himself a shelter. And there he sits waiting for something to happen. It feels a bit like he's sulking to me. And what's the significance of this shelter that he's built? Well, actually, this is what the people of Israel are instructed to do once a year for a festival called Sukkot, or it's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what it is, is this is a festival that commemorates the years that the Jews spent in the desert on their way to the promised land and the way particularly in which God looked after them, how God protected them under difficult desert conditions. Sukkah involves taking a week to rest, to camp, to feast and to celebrate. It's a joyful occasion. There are huge links with the Garden of Eden and the provision of God. Essentially, this is about reminding ourselves and celebrating about, essentially, this is all about trusting God and dwelling under his care. There's a quote here from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He says, the Sukkah was something that the Israelites built once a year, not to provide their own Eden, but to remind them of the gift of Eden's blessings that God provides for them. The whole point of the sukkah 
was to remind you of God's provision of Eden. Except in this story, we're told quite specifically that Jonah has built his own shelter. Jonah is not relying on God's blessings, on God's protection, on God's care. Jonah is very deliberately looking after himself. Thank you very much. He is grumpy and he's sulking and he's choosing not to engage with God and he's waiting to see what happens next. I wonder if secretly he's thinking, can I change God's mind back again? Or whatever, I don't know. In any case, he's pretty hacked off and he's pretty miserable. And God is watching on. What does God decide to do? Well, God decides to send a plant. And the text gives us two reasons why God sends this plant. One is to shade Jonah from the sun. That's a physical reason. And also to save him from discomfort. Or another uh, translation of that is to deliver him from evil, which feels more like a spiritual reason. I think God has an important lesson that he wants to teach Jonah. First, by the giving of a gift of a plant, God is showing that he, God, can meet Jonah's needs. Both his physical needs, giving shade and protection, and his spiritual needs. You see, Jonah has lived and can live under the blessing and the protection of God. It says Jonah was very happy about the plant. In fact, it says he was exceedingly glad. He was joyful, as the Israelites are supposed to be when they're celebrating this feast of God's provision and care. I just want to point out something. This is the only time in the whole story when the text tells us that Jonah was happy. He's under the shelter of a plant that God has provided for him, and he's happy. But this is a tale of two shelters, and there's something to think about for us here. You see, we can trust God and be under his care, or we can try and build our own shelter like Jonah and look after number one. What does that look like in our lives? I don't know. Where do we take God's place sometimes and rely on our own means, our own resources, our own plans. I mean, that's very much part of the culture of the world we live in. It's look after yourself. Sometimes it can be tricky, can't it, to put ourselves in a place where we are trusting and relying on God. For Jonah, this possibly could have been the end of the story, his very own happy ending. His story would have been, I ran away, I nearly died, God rescued me, I did what he asked, he forgave the Ninevites, and I was angry about that, but Here I am now with my own shelter and my own personal plant to keep the sun off, and I'm exceedingly happy. Thank you, God. The end. But it didn't quite finish like that because God hadn't finished with Jonah because God has a very important lesson to teach him. And after 24 hours of blissful happiness, God chooses then to take away the things that Jonah has come to rely on for protection and shelter, both God's plant and Jonah's shelter. You see, God allows the blessing to be reversed in order to provoke a reaction in Jonah and perhaps to challenge him with some hard truth. Because the point is that Jonah shouldn't be relying on himself. He shouldn't be relying on his shelter. He should be relying on God for his protection, his shelter, his comfort and his care. The plant was a symbol of God's blessing. But actually, we don't even trust in the symbols and the signs. We we trust in God. And God teaches Jonah this lesson with three things that seem to come out of nowhere. There's a worm and a withered plant and an east wind. And in this kind of text, when odd things come out of nowhere, it's a bit of a hint to dig deeper, find out where else in the Bible these things occur and why. I don't have time to go into this now, but I'm going to put some bonus content out, which uh, takes this a bit deeper. But suffice to say for now that all of these three things are symbols of God's judgment. 
the worm, which only shows up a couple of other times in the Old Testament, um, each time when it shows up when Israel is deliberately going against God's instructions, when they're failing to trust him. So, for example, when they're in the desert and he provides manna and then they take too much of it, that's when the worm comes in. The image of a withered vine or a withered plant is often associated with God's people walking away from their relationship with him or failing to keep their part of the covenant through history. And the east wind is usually associated with God's judgment. There are tons of examples. And so I said at the start of the book that Jonah encapsulates the whole of the Old Testament. You can see in the story of Jonah symbolically that this is the whole story of Israel. And when God gives a gift and it's not appreciated or it's misused, then it's taken away again in the form of an exile. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. Cain was exiled from the city. Israel themselves were exiled from their land. And Jonah here is exiled from God's blessing in that his gift is taken away. The worm eats the plant. The wind blows Jonah's shelter down. The sun beats down on his head. And once again, Jonah is done. Finally broken and defeated, he prays, just kill me now, God. Please put me out of my misery. I just don't get it. Jonah was a Jew. He was part of God's chosen nation. He knew his Bible. He was educated in God's law. As a prophet, he had learned to hear and speak the voice of God. But somewhere along the line, Jonah completely failed to understand God's heart for people. Jesus accuses something Jesus accuses the religious leaders of something similar in the Gospels. Now, I don't know why Jonah was like this. Sometimes he feels like the worst kind of self-righteous religious fanatic to me. But he might just as well have been a grumpy old man with no emotional awareness or self-knowledge. Or maybe he was afraid for his own life because in those days, false prophets were put to death. And so if his prophecy didn't come true, then potentially maybe he wondered if his life was in danger. One thing I do know is this, though. God loved Jonah despite his faults, just like he loves grumpy old men and women and religious fanatics. And he even loves me when I make judgments against other people. So we get into the end game of this whole book. Let's look at the last three verses. I'm going to kind of paraphrase it in my own way, really. God says, Jonah, are you angry because you lost your plant? Jonah says, yes, I'm so angry, I want to die. God says, You're so concerned about this plant, but you didn't really have anything to do with it. You didn't create it. You didn't make it grow. It just happened one day and died the next. Jonah, it's relatively inconsequential. But I have this city over here full of people who had turned their back on me and were in need of salvation and rescue. 120,000 people who I created and who I care about. And if you can be so concerned about the destiny of that random plant, Why can't I be concerned about the destiny of these precious people? They didn't even get the opportunity for relationship with me that you, Jonah, got by virtue of growing up with the law. You know, it says they they can't tell their right hand from their left. What that means is they don't know the law like you do. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks straight in the way of the Lord and doesn't turn to the right and doesn't turn to the left. God seems to be saying here that the Ninevites hadn't even heard of the law of Moses which would help them to get close to him. Jonah, they haven't even heard of me. They haven't even heard of the law. Are these people not deserving my mercy? And this is where we take our title, the series title from, the, the, this is God's offensive compassion. 
It's like Jonah is saying, God, I find your compassion offensive. I hate those people and I want to destroy them. And I want you to destroy them. They are evil. And God is saying, but Jonah, I love them. And they deserve another chance to change. Just like I gave you and your people. And right at the end, God seems to even suggest, Jonah, look, if you can't even find it in yourself to care about the people, then at least how about their animals? I mean, you seem to be so into plants and nature. Can't you even allow me to save them just for the sake of their animals? It's a really odd and abrupt ending, as I said. It feels frustrating because there's no resolution to this story. We never find out how Jonah reacts to this question. Does he quietly repent and choose to trust God despite his feelings? Or does he stay cross and angry and burn up in the heat of the sun? We'll never know. But the ending is deliberate and it's challenging because it turns the question back out on the audience, which is us. What are we going to do about the offensive compassion of God? Are we going to allow his mercy to meet us at our worst and to reach even the worst of our enemies? I always imagined God having this conversation from a place of anger with Jonah. If it was me, I think I'd be really angry. How dare you, Jonah? Who do you think you are? Luckily, God doesn't model his behaviour on me. And I actually wonder if this wasn't a quiet, gentle conversation. Because despite everything, I think God would want to reach out to Jonah and help him find a way back. To learn from this experience and grow closer to God for the rest of his life. You know, when my kids were growing up, one of the things that used to really wind me up was when they were being unkind to one another. I mean, they were all subject to a lot of grace from us, some more than others. But from time to time, for various reasons, there were times when they couldn't always extend that grace to one another very easily. And I would see the injustice in that and I would get really cross and wound up, which of course didn't help very much at all, because often it's the quiet conversations that make a difference. Once we've come to the end of ourselves, those quiet conversations can be the most effective. They give us the space that we need to really reflect on our behaviour, on our attitudes. And that's so much easier to do when we don't feel judged or shamed, but just gently loved with the perfect balance of truth and grace, which is how God was with Jonah, I think, and how he is with us, the perfect father. And this book of Jonah leaves us with the challenge. How are we going to respond? God's mercy extends to everyone, all people, including our enemies and those we find abhorrent. And people who have committed evil and unspeakable acts, all of whom can be subject to God's mercy if they call out to him. And that is a challenge. Because as Tim Mackey said, the mercy of God is remarkable for my enemies and for me when I struggle with the fact that he loves my enemies. I'm going to read you a poem. It's a very short poem by a man called Thomas John Carlyle. And Jonah stalked to his shaded seat and waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. And God is still waiting for a host of Jonas in their comfortable houses to come around to his way of loving. As I said, this whole book presents us with some real challenges. It's really worth reflecting on and thinking about. And earlier this week, I also spoke to Mal about something that happened in his life quite a few years ago now, but that really helped him to relate to this dilemma and relate to Jonah. So here's just a short video clip of Mal telling his story. 
the story starts when I joined the Met Police um, just after I finished my apprenticeship. And I found myself in the heart of the East End of London. Um, and if anyone uh, is a follower of uh, Call the Midwife, a series, um, then you'll know exactly what the East End was like in those days. And that's how I found it. And although I love the people, it got on with them very well. There's a lot of gang violence at the time, um, and a big gang culture. A lot of people got hurt. A lot of innocent people were getting hurt. And uh, that made me really, really angry. Um, and it quite hardened my heart, actually, uh, to the extent that when criminals hurt each, each other, uh, we just regarded it as an own goal. I mean, how bad is that? Mm. Um, and of course, that was in the, uh, the 1960s, but then moving on to the 1970s and through the 80s, uh, London experienced a lot of terrorist attacks. And uh, that, made, that just made my heart even harder, I have to say. And on one or two occasions, I had, I would say, the privilege of working with the SAS and um, in a very minor way, I have to say. But there was a, a satisfaction knowing that if those guys were around, then um, the people causing the trouble were going to get their summary justice, their just desserts. And, and that was actually pleasing, even knowing that they were probably going to be killed. Um, and so my heart was really hard, I have to say. Um, but that all changed. Uh, in 1992, I was working with a colleague on the M1 motorway, and we were just going off duty, actually, and uh, we, we heard a call for assistance, which we responded to. Our colleagues in Hertfordshire were uh, chasing a car chase, um, a, actually a sexual predator, that car uh, that was being driven by the criminal. Um, T-boned the car that my colleague and I were in, the impact into the side of our car, was nearly 70 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, so it was a complete miracle that actually we survived. I've no doubt that, you know, God was there at the time. Um, but I woke up on the grass. I was out cold for some time. And uh, my colleague, he had to be cut out of the police car because he was you know, seriously hurt. I had to have a major operation uh, on my neck where they had to stabilize um, the vertebrae by putting in a, a raw plug basically from my hip. And so I was off work for a long time, but I was really struggling with um, hatred for this guy, uh, as was my colleague. Um, but we sat there in the courtroom and the judge passed sentence. And as he did so, something quite unexpected happened that uh, I was just immediately just filled with what I recognize now as just the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> I was filled with peace and amazingly compassion for the guy that caused this problem. And I just knew um, that I could forgive him. And all my anger and hatred in my heart just disappeared. It just floated away, um, after, other than physical. I've, I've had no problems with PTSD or anything like that. Um, but God, although I didn't hear his audible voice at the time, uh, in that experience, I knew that I was able to forgive this guy because I had myself had been forgiven much. It was just something the Holy Spirit did inside me. And, um, and since then, I've actually looked at, at most, particularly violent criminals differently. You know, I, I try to sort of understand where that might be coming from. I would say it actually changed my, my whole um, Christian experience. Well, for a long time now, in fact, since that incident, um, I've really related to Jonah. I mean, I, my view was he was clearly angry um, at, at God 
for wanting to uh, bring his forgiveness or bring the opportunity of forgiveness uh, to the Ninevites because um, history tells us that they were probably the most dangerous feared people on the planet mm -hmm. and you know responsible for some very wicked stuff and I could see that in my past and how I viewed um, the criminality particularly in the east end of London where there was so much wickedness and violence and torture and, and also um, through my time later on in London where there was so much terrorist bombings and so on why would, why would God be even interested in these people? God asked Jonah, um, well, what good reason? What good reason do you have for, um, for hating these people? Um, and, and I could see that in myself. Uh, but then God demonstrated to uh, Jonah that, in fact, um, he was interested in, in everybody. And, of course, the Bible tells us that, you know, he wants all people to be saved. And that includes the worst of the worst. Thanks so much, Mal. Really appreciate that powerful story. Perhaps today you feel too far from the compassion and the grace of God. The things You feel like the things you've said and done rule you out and you don't deserve a second chance. I just want to tell you, the story of Jonah and the communion that we're going to share shortly remind us that we are all given a second chance through Jesus' death and his resurrection. This is a time to come back to God. Or perhaps, you know, there are people that we're aware of that we need to forgive. And we need God's help to extend his grace to those people. We're going to pray in a moment. Or perhaps you just feel like your heart is a bit too hard. And you don't actually care about the destiny of God's precious people who don't know him yet. And maybe your prayer today is to ask him to soften your heart. And to give you his heart for the lost and the least and the lonely. Just two practical things you could do. Uh, one is that you could just start praying. It's a good idea to pray for people regularly. Perhaps just choose five people and pray for them regularly. And the other thing that you could do really practically is invite them to come and join in with the Easter events that we are holding, which um, details are coming out about. But why don't we just pray together now? Father, thank you for the story of Jonah and this outrageous and sometimes offensive compassion of yours that we read about here and that we see going all over the place, through the Bible and through our lives and through the world. Thank you that your grace has been extended to us. Your mercy and your kindness abounds to us and through us to others as well. Thank you that we're given a second chance through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Thank you that life is available for us and it's available for others. Lord, if there are people that we need to forgive, if there are people that we need to sort of let off the hook as it were, or just release compassion, our own compassion and forgiveness to, Lord, will you help us to do that? Just bring those names and those people before you and we just ask for help. And Lord, for those of us who are just feeling a little bit tired and a bit hard-hearted and just sort of we're lacking care about people that we know we should care about. In this moment and in this season, Lord, it's been particularly tough. But Lord, we pray, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be with each of us. Lord, as we reflect on the story of Jonah, help us to live in, to fully comprehend and to fully walk out that incredible compassion and mercy of yours. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us here and now. And as we go on into communion, would you be with us and be close to us?
and speak to us. In Jesus' name.